Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey and this is being recorded on December 16th for the listening week that begins the 17th. First two articles come from the New York Times. This first one does not have a date indicating when it was posted, but it's recent. In her first statement since her release, Brittany Griner pledges to help Biden seek freedom for Paul Whelan. Brittany Griner, the American basketball star, on Friday left the military base in San Antonio where she had spent the eight days since her release from imprisonment in Russia, saying on Instagram that she planned to spend the holidays at home with her family. She also said she would play basketball for her team, the Phoenix Mercury, in the WNBA's next season. The last 10 months have been a battle at every turn, she said in her first public statement since her release from Russia, pardon me, from a Russian penal colony where she was serving a nine-year sentence after pleading guilty to a minor drug charge. She went on, I dug deep to keep my faith, and it was the love from so many of you that helped keep me going. From the bottom of my heart, thank you to everyone for your help. Her wife, Sherelle, said in a separate post of her own, I am so happy you're home and safe, babe. Miss Greiner left San Antonio from a private airport on Friday morning, according to her agent, Lindsay Kagawa Colas. She had been at Brook Army Medical Center since returning to the United States on December 8th. Miss Colas and Miss Greiner were going home, but did not say whether that meant her residence in Phoenix, hospital said, oh, pardon me, the hospital and State Department officials declined to comment. Pardon me, I misread that earlier. It's Miss Colas said Miss Greiner was going home. Three members of the Phoenix Mercury organization met her at the airport in San Antonio. The next WNBA season begins May 19th. Ms. Greiner thanked numerous people in her post, including the staff at the U.S. Army's Joint Base San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston, where she arrived at the medical center one week ago. The Brook Army Medical Center has long been a place the U.S. government has sent people who need to be debriefed or who require sensitive medical care after going through an ordeal like Ms. Greiner's. The hospital treats both civilians and military personnel who have survived torture or other, pardon me, or other trauma. Ms. Greiner also thanked her family and President Biden, and she pledged to help him seek the release of Paul Whelan, who is serving a 16-year sentence in Russia on espionage charges that the United States has said is politically motivated. She said, I also encourage everyone that played a part in bringing me home to continue their efforts to bring all Americans home. Every family deserves to be whole. In a separate Instagram story post, she shared information about how to write letters to Mr. Whelan. 
Miss Greiner was detained at an airport near Moscow in February. After customs officials said they found a small amount of cannabis oil and vape cartridges in her luggage. The State Department categorized her as wrongfully detained and sought a prisoner exchange for her release. Officials in Moscow had said that a prisoner exchange would not happen until after her trial concluded. A Russian court convinced her, pardon me, convicted her of drug smuggling, and in August, she was sentenced to nine years in a penal colony known for its harsh conditions. Her appeal was denied in October, and she was sent to the IK-2 female penal colony 300 miles southeast of Moscow. She was released on December 8th in a prisoner swap for Victor Bout, an arms dealer who had been convicted in 2011 on charges including conspiring to kill Americans. Also from the New York Times, this one was posted December 10th in celebration of Morocco's rise in the World Cup, written by Asma El-Kurti. North Africans have their day in Astoria, Queens. Cheers, honks, and fireworks drowned out all else on Steinway Street in Queens, where a crowd of thousands came out to celebrate Morocco's World Cup victory over Portugal on Saturday. Smoke and confetti filled the air as many Moroccan flags were waved alongside the emblems of Algeria, Egypt, Tunisia, Lebanon, and a number of other Muslim countries. Called Little North Africa, or Little Egypt, this strip is home to a vibrant community of New Yorkers with ties to North African countries. Dar Yema, a Moroccan restaurant owned by Saber Boutera and Ali Abarach, broadcast the match in a special event over a breakfast of traditional foods. Mr. Boutera, who immigrated from Algeria to Astoria seven years ago, said he was happy to be part of such a significant moment. They made history today. The restaurant overflowed with fans of Morocco as some outside peered in through the windows. Most patrons were local, but a few came from outside of the neighborhood to cheer. Khadija Julalet was among them. Ms. Julalet, Julalet pardon me, arrived from Houston to meet her niece, who had flown in from Morocco, so they could watch the match together. I'm ecstatic, happy, Miss Judale said, straining to be heard over the sounds of celebration in the restaurant. It's hard to really describe the emotions I'm feeling right now. Saad Debbie was born to Moroccan parents in France. He said he extended a work trip from Boston so just so he could catch the game in Astoria. I'm very glad I did. I'm so proud of Morocco. This win is big for our country and for Africa. Everyone spoke about the significance of a win that connects to communities beyond the small North African country. Rana Abdelhamid, an Egyptian-American activist and former candidate for New York's 12th Congressional District, was among those celebrating. Miss Abdelhamid said, as an African myself, watching the first African team make it to the semifinals is a huge source of pride and love and joy. 
You can feel it all around us. It shows how much dedication and unity this cup win has created for so many. Miss Abdelhamid was born, who was born and raised in Astoria, saw the diversity of the neighborhood reflected in the World Cup celebration. She said, There are Egyptians, Moroccans, Algerians, Tunisians, Yemenis, and Palestinians out here today. The fact that everybody is coming together to celebrate Morocco shows how much we are in solidarity with each other and connected as a community. We've always felt connected as a community. Mr. Boutera, who opened Dar Yema with Mr. Abarak in February, believed the celebration was another example of the sense of camaraderie in Astoria. He said, Astoria is becoming the heart of New York. It's a supportive community. When Algeria won the African Cup, everyone in the neighborhood came out and celebrated us. Greeks, Arabs, everybody. Now it's Morocco's turn. And a brief paragraph about the game itself by Ben Shibigel. Spiegel, no, pardon me, that's Spiegel. The seconds must have felt like minutes, and the minutes like hours for Morocco and its fans. When the final whistle blared, after a frenetic second half and eight twitchy minutes of stoppage time, Morocco's players fell to their knees and jumped into one another's arms. For the second consecutive match, Morocco eliminated an Iberian power. First Spain, now Portugal, with a 1-0 victory that sent the Atlas Lions into the World Cup semifinals. Never before had an African nation advanced to a semifinals. Now, improbably, delightfully, Morocco is one victory from the final. It will play England or France on Wednesday. From your reader, I mean from your Yes, pardon me, me, your reader. Um, they did lose the match with France. Continuing. A header in the 42nd minute by Youssef in Nesri, Nesiri provided the margin, and Morocco, despite playing the final six or so minutes with ten men, held on to foil Cristiano Ronaldo's dreams of winning the World Cup. Next article, also from the New York Times, posted December 6th online by Stephanie Lai. Maxwell Frost, first Gen Z congressman, gets his bearings on Capitol Hill. In the weeks after his election, the youngest member of the incoming House has learned just how different his lifestyle and perspective is from his older colleagues. Dateline Washington he is a fan of early 2000s rock, which was popular when he was in kindergarten. He is still working to get his undergraduate degree, and he is couch surfing to save money as he starts his new job, which is representing Florida's 10th Congressional District in the United States House of Representatives. Representative-elect Maxwell Frost, a 25-year-old Afro-Cuban progressive activist from Orlando, is about to be the youngest member of Congress. He has swapped the megaphone he once used to lead protests for a seat in one of the nation's most powerful institutions where he will be the first member of Generation Z to serve. In a body where the average age was more than twice his, 
parentheses, 58.4 years old in the most recent Congress, Mr. Frost is starting with a keen sense of mission. I think we all have this call to action, and you feel like you have to do something, he said on a recent Wednesday, as he made his way to a hotel room to freshen up before getting his official headshot taken. The something that motivated Mr. Frost, he said, was the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in 2012 when he was in high school, which killed 26 people, most of them young children, and gave rise to a grim and nearly omnipresent ritual of active shooter drills for primary and secondary school students across the country. Mr. Frost, who is of Lebanese, Puerto Rican, and Haitian descent, and was adopted at birth in 1997, grew up in Orlando with a mother who was a Cuban refugee and school teacher, and a father who was a Kansas-born musician. At an early age, he came to love music and the arts, eventually hosting a music festival with a friend, but he found another passion in political activism, volunteering in 2012 with President Barack Obama's re-election campaign, and then in 2016 with presidential campaigns for Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. After enrolling at Valencia College in Orlando in 2015, he took a break in 2019 to work for the American Civil Liberties Union and later became a national organizer for the youth-led advocacy group March for Our Lives, which focuses on enacting stricter gun control measures. He drove for Uber to make ends meet. In January 2021, a political operative approached urging him to seek public office. But Mr. Frost said what ultimately persuaded him to do so was connecting with his biological mother several months later. During the conversation, Mr. Frost learned that his biological mother, who had seven other children and gave birth to him at the most vulnerable port, pardon me, the most vulnerable point in her life, had given him up because she did not have the resources to care for him. Just hearing about the hardships she went through as a woman of color really solidified my beliefs, Mr. Frost said. I hung up the phone and said, I'm running for Congress. He declared his candidacy two months later. Mr. Frost said he was moved to run, quote, for people like my biological mother, for my family, and for my district and wanted to be in a position to fight to ensure that the condition doesn't exist for anybody. Mr. Frost's win in the midterm elections was a bright spot for Democrats who lost ground in Florida and narrowly lost their majority in the House. He adds to a diverse field of newly elected representatives from underrepresented communities. Not everyone has been dazzled by Mr. Frost's youthful enthusiasm his Republican challenger, Calvin Wimbish, suggested that he was unfit to serve in Congress. What has he been able to do? Mr. Wimbish asked in an interview with Spectrum News. Has he managed people, resources? Has he had time? Has he had the exposure to learning from others? 
Mr. Frost is taking over the distinction of youngest member of Congress from Representative Madison Cawthorn, Republican of North Carolina, who was elected in 2020 at the age of 25. But the Florida Democrat is not the youngest member of Congress in history. That record, which is unlikely ever to be broken, belongs to William C.C. Claiborne, who may have been 22 when he was elected to the House in 1797. Parentheses. There is some dispute over his age, but no question that he was under 25. While the Constitution mandates that House members be at least 25 years old, the House chose to seat Mr. Claiborne anyway. With his youth come pardon me, with his youth come some unique challenges for Mr. Frost. He is spending the first few weeks in Washington crashing with friends as he searches for an affordable place to live, as he will not be paid for a few weeks until the new Congress convenes on January 3rd. When the moment is right, he said he would rent a studio apartment within walking or electric scooter distance of the Capitol. But his age has also given him a leg up in some areas. During the digital training portion of the new member orientation over the past two weeks, he managed to set up his personal technology in half the time of his older colleagues. He surprised his fellow members-elect last week as he captured moments throughout the day with 0.5 selfies, a new fad among the Gen Z set that entails taking iPhone photos using the back camera. And he's had the privilege of being slimed by Nickelodeon and getting a shout-out from the English pop band, the 1975, while at one of the band's concerts. On Capitol Hill, he has sometimes felt like a kid trying to get to know a new school. He got lost in the Capitol Visitor Center as the soundtrack of the Broadway musical Hamilton blared in his headphones and had the dizzying experience of meeting new and current members during informational sessions throughout the Capitol complex. Representative Val B. Demings, the Florida Democrat whom he will succeed, has offered him mentorship and described him in an interview as, quote, beyond his years. He takes the job seriously, Mr. Demings, pardon me, Miss Demings said, but I don't think he takes himself too seriously. If he can keep that kind of spirit, even on the rough days and nights here, he'll be okay. Her main piece of advice for the youngster talk to different people, and look across the aisle for unlikely allies. Representative Mark Pocon, Democrat of Wisconsin, who visited Mr. Frost before the primary election to help his campaign, said he would fit right in in Congress. Mr. Pocon said, You know, for someone who is 25, he's kind of an old soul, adding that he had been struck by Mr. Frost's thoughtfulness of how he looked at issues and his progressive values. Mr. Sanders was among the first to reach out to congratulate him after the election was called, said Mr. Frost, recounting how he knew his former boss was calling when the Vermont area code popped up on his phone. He has the potential to be a great leader, speaking to the young people in this country, Mr. Sanders said of Mr. Frost in an interview. For now, Mr. Frost is focused on some immediate tasks. He has about a year left on his undergraduate education at Valencia College, 
and he said he intends to resume his coursework at some point. Over the next two years, Mr. Frost aims to lean into his love for grassroots organizing by building a strong local presence with an accessible district office. At the Capitol, he said his goal was to make incremental steps toward addressing democratic priorities, such as improving health care, enacting gun control measures, and building community violence intervention programs. In the next few weeks, he will hire a staff, move into his new corner office in the Longworth building across from the Capitol, and learn how to balance his administrative budget and manage his time as a representative. He said, let's start where we can and not lose sight of our values. Our next article on community violence intervention comes from Afro.com, the Black Media Authority. It's an opinion piece posted on December 12th, written by Shantae Jackson. Demystifying Baltimore's Community Violence Intervention Approach. Imagine this. A grandmother gets a knock at the door. When she answers, she's greeted by community violence intervention workers. They let the grandmother know that her grandson, who was recently shot and released from the hospital, is thinking about retaliating, and not just thinking about it, that he has said out loud that he's going to shoot the person who shot him. These workers received a call from her son, who is currently serving a federal prison sentence. From behind the wall, he is gravely concerned about the safety of his son and his mother who live together. Because of their deep love for their neighborhood and the safety of everyone who lives there, the workers let the grandmother know that she can't stay in the house. The workers remain with her as she collects her things and moves her, and they move her to a safe location. Back in the neighborhood, these frontline workers do the deeply tailored and human work of cooling tensions and mediating the conflict. They locate her grandson and talk him down from retaliating while making referrals for wraparound support. After four days, they inform the grandmother that it's safe for her to return home. Now imagine that this is a true story, because it is. Thanks to this life-saving intervention, there have been no incidents between the parties since. This is just one example of what the mayor and I mean when we say community violence intervention, pardon me, intervention, or CVI. Our city was an early adopter of cure violence, an evidence-based public health intervention. Safe Streets, Baltimore's flagship gun violence intervention program, uses this model. This workforce focuses on interrupting gun violence within a set area that corresponds to the violent crime data released by the Baltimore Police Department, BPD. Violence interrupters log mediations and make referrals to services for those at the highest risk of being a shooter or getting shot. Contrary to popular belief, the program only operates within 2.6 square miles. Baltimore is 90 square miles. We must cover more ground with the way we leverage and coordinate our partnerships. 
A colleague of mine and I have been discussing for years the need to evolve the demonstration project that Safe Streets was into the ecosystem that we know CVI must be. For too long, Baltimore has only known CVI through the lens of Safe Streets. While it will continue to serve as the cornerstone of our work, Safe Streets is not synonymous with CVI. It is a CVI component, a program of CVI. CVI is a community-based and multifaceted program. It doesn't just include outreach and violence intervention. It provides victim services, life coaching, crisis response management, wraparound supports, and programming at hospitals and schools. The physical care given by the hospital and the outreach and violence intervention provided to the victim of our true story helped him with his grand pardon me, helped him, his grandmother, and his community in the moment, but without the provision of mental health, life coaching, and victim services support, our work would have been incomplete and he wouldn't be on a path to treating his emotional trauma. Mayor Scott has made an historic investment in this non-law enforcement, evidence-based work and is pulling disconnected efforts into strategic alignment to cover more ground. M-O-N-S-E, MONTS, is very intentionally balancing evidence-based approaches like cure violence with innovative ones, and while much work remains, I'm proud of the foundation forged by our team. MONTS is the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. We must also continue to invest in the people who knowingly put themselves in between a gun and the person it is pointed at. For Dante's sake, for Benny's sake, for Deshaun's sake, for our village's sake. Baltimore lost 338 people to homicide last year. Historically, City Hall has struggled to put strategies in place that reverse the trend of persistently high levels of gun violence for the long term. Mayor Scott established Mons to institute the city's very first comprehensive public safety strategy. In less than two years, Mons has simultaneously driven the integrated strategic approaches of CVI and the Group Violence Reduction Strategy, known as GVRS. As Mons prepares to scale GVRS to more of the city in early 2023, we're thrilled that the work piloted in the Western District has yielded 30% reductions in gun violence since being stood up in January. This approach employs CVI and realize, relies pardon me, on a strong partnership with law enforcement partners at all levels. This is not overnight work. City Hall can't do it alone. Its success will depend on partnership. We are focused on doubling down on our early impacts and growing them until we have cured Baltimore of the disease of gun violence. Note at the bottom says, Shantae Jackson, the author, serves as director of the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement, Mons. Mayor Brandon M. Scott established the office shortly after beginning his term and tasked it with coordinating work associated with the city's first-ever comprehensive violence prevention plan. She is a resident of Howard Park in northwest Baltimore. Continuing with local news from around the country, this one comes 
From the Root.com, written by Kaylin Womack, published December 9th. Southern Cali County declares racism a public health crisis. Critics of the resolution equate its very existence to the movement behind critical race theory. Republican Andrew Doe, member of the Orange County Board of Supervisors, proposed a resolution at Tuesday's meeting to declare racism a public health crisis, according to CNN. Though black people and people of color have been trying to ring the alarm about the issue for decades, a predominantly white county taking the same stance could send a message. Experiencing racism has been associated with increased risk for new pardon me, numerous mental and physical chronic health conditions like heart disease, cancer, asthma, stroke, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and suicide, said Doug Chaffee, Democrat and chairman of the board. These health disparities underscore the urgent need to address systemic racism as a root cause of racial and ethnic health inequities and a core element of public health efforts, he went on. The board unanimously adopted the resolution which will review county government policies and operations through an ad hoc committee responsible for identifying concerning practices, says the report. This includes examining social services facilities, homeless shelters, and any area where marginalized communities are historically denied access. Of course, the resolution didn't pass without some serious backlash from the public who, while trying to argue racism doesn't exist, proved it is alive and well. The following quote from CNN, During the public comments segment of the meeting, one speaker equated Doe's resolution with critical race theory, an academic concept that seeks to understand and address inequality and racism in the United States, which has been maligned by many conservatives. And just this week, as the board was preparing to vote on Doe's resolution, declaring racism a public health crisis, an audience member yelled at Orange County Health Care Agency Director Clayton Chow, telling him to go back to China. Doe quickly came to his colleague's defense, slamming the man who had hurled that slur, as well as those claiming the resolution was unnecessary in Orange County. Doe said, Really? Go back to China? And you think racism is dead? End quote. California documented a skyrocket in hate, pardon me, hate crimes since 2017, which only became worse after the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and murder of George Floyd. Orange County alone saw a 165% increase in hate crimes in 2021 alone compared to the previous five years. Though these crimes certainly date back to the 1970s, when Doe experienced racism firsthand after coming to the United States as a Vietnamese refugee. When I first came over, it was more extreme. Now, more lately, it's more subtle. I believe it's there, but that's from a small minority of people that I come into contact with, Doe told CNN. It's powerful that Doe not only spoke up, but swayed the board to adopt this resolution regardless of his political party being the driving force against most initiatives 
to acknowledge systemic racism. If only everyone could get with the program. Our next news comes from the Dallas area via the Dallas Morning News. This was posted on December 15th, written by Amanda Albi. The Tajin of West Africa? Dallas Spice Company wants African food to be the next movement. Polk's Spices packages the Holy Trinity of West African cooking, and that's an acronym is P-O-K-S. When Abena Foley had to bring a handmade gift to a white elephant exchange for her office Christmas party in 2015, she decided on a spice blend. The gift later, pardon me, later evolved into her first company, Pokes Spices, a line of progressively spicy blends for use in Africa, pardon me again, in West African cooking, or any kind of cooking. Along with being a food regulation and labeling expert, Foley is a confident cook who doesn't often consult recipes, preferring instead to use the eyeball method she observed from other cooks in her family. She began blending spices at a young age on her father's poultry farm in Tema, Ghana, where corn, spring onions, and lettuce grow alongside chickens a short five miles from the Atlantic coast. Sundays were perhaps the biggest day for cooking, and she describes the rhythm as church, cook, eat, sleep, play, cook, eat. The simple life, she says. Foley later moved to the U.S. to study biochemistry and food science. In her college application essay, she, pardon me, she outlined a goal of creating a food company that would process Ghanaian food. After graduate school, she moved to New Orleans and experimented with the hot seafood sauce brand, but later shelved the dream when she realized it was too expensive. The 2015 Christmas party planted a seed, however. Foley's co-worker said he had enjoyed the spice blend on his grilled steaks. That feedback gave Foley confidence. She told her husband Eugene, a data scientist at Texas Instruments, if he likes it, others will. By July the next year, Foley's dream materialized as Polk's Spices, selling what she refers to as the West African Holy Trinity chili pepper, ginger, and an allium, like onion or garlic. She realizes most people are familiar with, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, mirepoix, which is carrots, celery, and onions, and the holy trinity of Cajun cooking, celery, onions, and green peppers. Many also know the required base for Indian cooking, garlic, ginger, and onion. But Foley wanted to promote another culinary baseline. She said, I wanted to hone in on what you need for West Africa. Every West African country accentuates a different ingredient. In Senegal, onions star in dishes like chicken yassa. In Ghana and along the Ivory Coast, generous doses of ginger are added to stews like kejano stew, and pardon my mispronunciation, and in Cameroon and Nigeria, where even extra spicy is not spicy enough, she said, chili peppers take the lead. Polk's Spices, which comes from Foley's childhood pet name, 
attempts to represent all of the region with mild jalapeno, original and extra spicy. Since its founding in 2016, Pokes has seen success with slow, steady growth that's been paused by occasional breaks. Like when Foley had a high-risk pregnancy and her husband filled all the orders. Otherwise, Pokes has been a favorite at farmer's markets and trade shows, like Zest Fest and the Scovie Awards, where the Spices have earned four first-placed wins among eight awards. Last year, the company received the Merchant Maverick Opportunity Grant, when in the hours before it was due, Foley says she poured her heart into the application that asked her to define the meaning of community. It was her fifth time to apply. The $10,000 grant helped Foley re-strategize. She upgraded pouch packaging and invested into marketing, a product that can be utilized in any home cook's standard recipes, not just West African food. They have recipes on their website for shrimp and grits, pineapple chili paletas, spicy candied bacon, and more. But she says she wouldn't mind being the tagine or sriracha, sri that's a pepper whose pronunciation always escapes me, sriracha sauce of West African food either. I want it to be like when people think about West African food and think about how to spice their West African food, Pokes Spices comes to mind. Interest in West African food is on the rise in America. Last year, the Food Institute reported that the number of Americans trying various African cuisines has risen from 6% to 8%. In July, Foley partnered with Burlap and Barrel to offer an exclusive jollof rice seasoning blend. About 1,500 units sold out in four months, and now they're waiting for production to catch up, hopefully by next year. Foley believes multiple factors can explain the recent popularity of jollof, an emblematic West African tomato and onion-based rice dish, one being that rice is a rel relatable entry point into another cuisine. Also, more African restaurants are opening, particularly in Dallas-Fort Worth, where approximately 99,000 sub-Saharan African immigrants reside. Additionally, platforms like TikTok have allowed creators to present their culture and share recipes without the lens of a press agent. The popularity of music genre Afrobeats is also on the rise, with America's biggest stars like Beyonce collaborating with Guyanese-American rapper Saint Jin and Nigerian singer Wizkid for the multiple award-winning song Brown Skin Girl. The last factor is one Foley can speak to from personal experience, which is increasing diversity in places where food trends are developed. For the longest time, whenever food trends come out, Africa was not even part of the conversation. But as more people like me have a seat at the table, we're able to advocate for things that may have been ignored for a while, she says. The lack of West African representation still bothers her after 10 years in corporate food roles, but jollof is one of those dishes where we've been able to have a place at the table and say, hey, you keep ignoring West Africa. We're not just AIDS and famine. Some of the things that exist, some of those things do exist, but that's not all.
we have our own complex and colorful and flavorful cuisine landscape that has not even been spoken about. Folie's passion to shift perceptions of West Africa is what motivates her to keep going with Pogue's Spices, which has yet to be picked up by a retail grocery store. Sales from the website and at farmer's markets aren't paying the light bill, she says, and her full-time job as head of regulatory affairs at a cultured meat startup has been the main reason she's been able to finance Pokes for the last six years. Foley says she feels like quitting many times, but Eugene and her parents, whom she calls the company's chief encouragement officers, have kept her going. For her, Pokes isn't just a product. If it were, she says, we would have shut down two years ago. Rather, Pokes is about shifting the narrative about the West African region through food. So, even though it's tough, even though it's difficult, that's why we keep on going. That's why Eugene reminds me, remember why you're doing this. And you can find that online at pokesspices.com. P-O-K-S-S-P-I-C-E-S. Back to afro.com for the next article, which was posted December Oh, pardon me. This is an archived article, which I did not realize till right now, but it comes from the December 21st, 2021, about a Senate action. U.S. Senate takes aim at solving Baltimore's food desert crisis. Food desert is certainly an issue that continues. So, this was written by P.K. Simler, maybe edited for length. It's not that long, though. The Bipartisan Bill, the Healthy Food Access for All Americans, HFAAA Act, introduced earlier in 2021 by Senator Mark Warner, Democrat of Virginia, and Shelley Moore Capito, Republican of West Virginia, will for the first time directly address the issue of food deserts and the gaping divide between the have and have-nots in urban and rural America. No better exemplified by the food desert capital of the United States, Baltimore. Senator Warner said he is determined to tackle the social and economic disparities represented by food deserts through a carrot-and-stick approach. Carrot, tax incentives, access to capital. Stick, withdrawing federal subsidies and borrowing facilities. The senior senator for Maryland and Highlandtown, Baltimore native Ben Cardin, said... He has been in close contact with his colleague from Virginia regarding the need to solve the food desert and food insecurity crisis in Baltimore and in the rest of the nation. Cardin said a major obstacle that needs to be addressed is to incentivize and convince major supermarket chains such as Safeway, Giant, Aldi, and others to open in the inner city. The problem is getting the financing. There is a structural impediment in going into inner-city communities. There shouldn't be, but there is, said Cardin, speaking behind an Aldi supermarket in Brandywine, Maryland, adding, Part of it is mental, part of it is confidence in the future, part of it is concern about public safety, part of it is concern about shoplifting. All those issues are factors currently being considered, whether investor whether an investor is going to go into a community. 
and we have to overcome those obstacles, and some of them are justified. But these are obstacles. Cardin also noted he has first-hand knowledge of the grocery business as he started in his grandfather's B. Green & Company wholesale grocery business in the Camden area of Baltimore. A former governor of Virginia and successful TMT, telecommunications media technology entrepreneur, Mark Warner, knows how to get things done in Congress, such as the $1 trillion Build America Better infrastructure bill, and ensuring that minority banks receive more than $12 billion from then-U.S. Secretary Steve Munchen for COVID-19 relief from the Payroll Protection Program, PPP. The Warner Capito bill mirrors a bipartisan bill in the U.S. House of Representatives, which was sponsored by Representative McEachin, Democrat of Virginia, and Representative Ryan, Democrat of Ohio, that offers a one-time 15% tax credit for new supermarkets or retrofitting existing ones, and a one-time construction grants to food banks and farmers markets, mobile grocers, and others would receive grants of up to 10% of their annual service costs. Not only does he seek bipartisan consensus by working with Republican Shelley Capito and Kansas Republican Senator Jerry Moron, but Warner is also roping in private sector partners like Wall Street mega banker and part-time DJ Goldman Sachs CEO David M. Solomon. Goldman Sachs has invested $300 million with Under Armour founder Kevin Plank in developing Port Covington into an IT hub of excellence after Amazon snubbed the area for the company's second headquarters. One can argue that food deserts are the best and most objective benchmark benchmark, pardon me, of economic disparity in the United States and should be used as the sole indicator for the determination of highly lucrative federal and state opportunity zone tax credits in economically depressed communities. While Port Covington may be luring away some of the best and brightest from Silicon Valley, the notorious food deserts of East and West Baltimore are worse than ever after the devastating impact of COVID-19. The horrible food deserts in East, West, and Cherry Hill in Baltimore, where 25% of the population does not have access to quality foods, are mirrored in the rural communities, such as the Appalachians, Senator Capito's West Virginia, the U.S. Senate and House bills, can go a long way to convincing the CEOs such as giant France Miller, Safeway's Robert Gerald Miller, and Germany's Aldi Lars Herzl to look at food deserts as an economic as well as a social opportunity. The United States Department of Agriculture already has an in-depth interactive map of the nation food deserts that can be accessed on their website www.ers usda.gov. Senator Ben Cardin told the Afro that he would be interested in speaking with U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet, Le Janet Yellen pardon me, about using the food desert definition to determine federal tax credits to opportunity zones rather than the current hodgepodge system today 
where some relatively affluent areas receive tax breaks, while truly depressed areas do not. Next, some coronavirus news from afro.com. This was posted December 5th, written by Blake Farmer. Treating COVID-19 long haulers is rife with guesswork. Medical equipment is still strewn around the house of Rick Lucas, 62, nearly two years after he came home from the hospital. He picks up a spirometer, a device that measures lung capacity, and takes a deep breath, though not as deep as he would like. Still, Lucas has come a long way for someone who spent more than three months on a ventilator because of COVID-19. He said, I'm almost normal now. I was thrilled when I could walk to the mailbox. Now we're walking all over town. Dozens of major medical centers have established specialized COVID clinics around the country. A crowdsourced project counted more than 400. But there's no standard protocol for treating long COVID. And experts are casting a wide net for treatments with few ready for formal clinical trials. It's not clear just how many people have suffered from symptoms of long COVID. Estimates vary widely from study to study, often because the definition of long COVID itself varies. But the more conservative estimates still count millions of people with this condition. For some, the lingering symptoms are worse than the initial bout of COVID. Others, like Lucas, were on death's door and experienced a roller coaster recovery much worse than expected, even after a long hospitalization. Symptoms vary widely. Lucas had brain fog, fatigue, and depression. He would start getting his energy back, then go try light yard work, and end up in the hospital with pneumonia. It wasn't clear which ailments stemmed from being on a ventilator so long, and which signaled the mysterious condition called long COVID. I was wanting to go to work four months after I got home, said Rick, over the laughter of his wife and primary caregiver, Cindy. I said, you know what? Just get up and go. You can't drive. You can't walk. But go in for an interview. Let's see how that works, Cindy recalled. Rick did start working earlier this year, taking short-term assignments in his old field as a nursing home administrator, but he's still on partial disability. Why has Rick mostly recovered while so many haven't shaken the symptoms even years later? There is absolutely nothing anywhere that's clear about long COVID, said Dr. Stephen Deeks, an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Francisco. We have a guess at how frequently it happens, but right now everyone's in a data-free zone. Researchers like Deeks are trying to establish the conditions underlying causes. Some of the theories include inflammation, autoimmunity, so-called microclots, and bits of the virus left in the body. Deeks said institutions need more money to create regional centers of excellence to bring together physicians from various specialties to treat patients and research therapies. Patients say they are desperate and willing to try anything to feel normal again, and often they mo pardon me, they post personal anecdotes online. Deeks said, I'm following this stuff on social media looking for a home run. 
The National Institutes of Health promises big advances soon through the Recover Initiative, involving thousands of patients and hundreds of researchers. Given the widespread and diverse impact the virus has on the human body, it is unlikely that there will be one cure, one treatment, said Dr. Gary Gibbons, director of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. It is important that we help find solutions for everyone. This is why there will be multiple clinical trials over the coming months. Meanwhile, tension is building in the medical community over what appears to be a grab-bag approach in treating long COVID ahead of big clinical trials. Some clinicians hesitate to try therapies before they've supported pardon me, before they are supported by research. Dr. Kirsten England, who oversees more than 2,000 long COVID patients at the Cleveland Clinic, said a bunch of one-time patient, pardon me, a bunch of one-patient experiments could muddy the waters for research. She said she encouraged her team to stick with evidence-based medicine. She said, I'd rather not be just kind of one-off trying things with people because we really do need to get more data and evidence-based data. We need to try to put things in some sort of protocol moving forward. It's not that she lacks urgency. England experienced her own long COVID symptoms. She felt terrible for months after getting sick in 2020. She said, literally taking naps on the floor of my office in the afternoon. More than anything, she said, these long COVID clinics need to validate patients' experiences with their illness and give them hope. She tries to stick with proven therapies. Other treatments, however, seem to have helped. Cindy asked their doctor about her husband possibly taking testosterone to boost his energy, and after doing research, the doctor agreed to give it a shot. People like myself are getting a little bit out over my skis, looking for things that I can try, said Dr. Stephen Hyman, a pulmonologist who treats Rick Lucas at the Long COVID Clinic in Ascension St. Thomas in Nashville. He's trying medications seen as promising in treating addiction and combinations of drugs used for cholesterol and blood clots, and he has considered becoming a bit of a guinea pig himself. Hyman has been up and down with his own Long COVID. At one point, he thought he was past the memory lapses and breathing trouble. Then he caught the virus a second time and feels more fatigued than ever. I don't think I can wait for somebody to tell me what I need to do, he said. I'm going to have to use my expertise to try and find out what, why I don't feel well. Just a... Uh, do a few of these best books of 2022, and we can finish that up another week. The Best Black Nonfiction of 2022 by Angela Johnson for TheRoot.com. 2022 was a great year for black books. These are some of our favorites. Viola Davis's Finding Me. Actress Viola Davis gets real in Finding Me the story of her rise to fame. She writes about everything from growing up in Rhode Island to becoming one of the most sought-after actresses in Hollywood and all of the peaks and valleys along the way. There's a reason why this one was a 2022 Oprah's Book Club pick and a Harper's Bazaar Best Book of 2022. 
Next, Bigger Than Bravery, Black Resilience and Reclamation in a Time of Pandemic, a collection edited by Valerie Boyd. Nine months after her untimely death, Valerie Boyd blessed us with this powerful collection of stories from well-known black writers, including Alice Walker, Disha Filwa, and Taraya Jones, Tayari Jones. In Bigger Than Bravery, writers share their reflections on the intersection of COVID pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. Once again, that's Bigger Than Bravery. And the last one for this week, Walking in My Joy in These Streets by Jennifer Lewis. Walking in My Joy is like a conversation with your favorite auntie. Actress and activist Jennifer Lewis's witty sense of humor comes through in this collection of stories from her travels that are almost too fascinating to be true. She even manages to put a hilarious spin on fainting at an Obama holiday party. Throughout the book, the fierce mental health advocate encourages readers to continue to love on themselves and walk in their joy. That's Walking in My Joy by Jennifer Lewis. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by funds from the Boulder County and Denver Regional Council of Governments Area Agencies on Aging. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.